I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Madison Mancusa. Madison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, now, you're a bit unusual today. Uh, we usually have scientists in Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences, uh, but you're here at UBC um, using some of our geochemistry labs as an archaeologist, right? Yes. Now, people often confuse archaeology and paleontology. Uh, they both spend a lot of time digging in the ground. Yes. <laughs> but um, how would you define archaeology? I would define archaeology as much more recent in the grand scheme of things than paleontology. Paleontology deals with um, tens, hundreds, thousands of millions of years ago, whereas archaeology, I'd say, I, I guess I'd define two different types of archaeology. One that's more human evolution type, which I'd say ranges five to six million years ago to like as recent as a uh, half million years ago and then a much more recent archaeology um, that deals with more people as we know them today and culture, um, which can be as recent as 50 years ago. Okay, I was going to ask, uh, when does it stop? Or yeah, how recent <laughs> can archaeology yeah, be? Yeah, so there's actually like I've heard there's a definition for ancient, um, and that's 50 years ago. Some professors I've talked to have said, no, that's wrong. But I, I feel like 50 years is a good amount of time to call something ancient. I'm sure many profs don't appreciate 50 years being <laughs> yeah, the, the cutoff for ancient. <laughs> I'm getting close there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here we use the definition of um, division for paleontology uh, as being anything more than 10,000 years old. And that's just a nice cutoff line uh, to prevent turf wars between us and the Beattie Biodiversity Museum. Uh, they get everything younger than 10,000 years and we get everything older. That's interesting. Yeah, no, like my undergrad definitely went into the millions of years ago. So that's funny. But I mean, it changes for every context and yes that's true um every institution i'm sure yeah 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 so right now i'm doing my masters of archaeological science at lakehead university um but my undergrad was in uh anthropology i actually started in biology and found myself reading my friend's human evolution anthropology textbook more than my own and knew that's what I wanted to do. That's a good sign when you're reading a textbook for fun and not even your own textbook. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was it about um, archaeology and anthropology that uh, turned your crank? I think it's just the mystery and the stories I've always been attracted to history, um, 
and reading about ancient civilizations and ancient people. But I never really thought I could do that as a career. And then once I got to Lakehead and started seeing like actual people in the field and not just professors, like we'd have guest speakers, I knew that I could at least try and do this as my career. Excellent. And it's not just a random mystery. It's the mystery of us. Yes. And where you and I come from. Yes. In your uh, career, I mean, you're still a very fresh um, archaeologist, but have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Either discoveries that contribute to broader science or even just something that made you sit up and um, really take notice? I don't have any discoveries of my own. But one thing I'm excited about is for my master's project, we are um, doing strontium isotopes on ancient dung, specifically bison dung, um, which strontium isotopes is a relatively new isotope um, in archaeology, but its use on dung has... Is, pretty rare. I've, I think I've only read one study about it. So I'm really excited wow. to see what my results hold. Why strontium? So strontium is used to track mobility and provenience. Uh, so theory behind it is um, Earth's bedrock has strontium in it, which erodes into the soil into plants and then herbivores such as bison which is what i study um, eat those plants and then they ingest the strontium and from there there's really no fractionation um, between the rock the soil the plants the bison so we can essentially more or less match the strontium in skeletal remains to the strontium in the geology and sort of match where they go. <laughs> How old is this dung? So this dung's from Promontory Caves, which was inhabited um, 1250 to 1290 AD, so about 800 years ago. Okay. Uh, and where are these caves? So Promontory Caves is located on the uh, northern point of Great Salt Lake in Utah, um, it's a pretty important site. It can tell us about, um, or it can probably tell us about uh, cultural transitions of ancient people. And uh, I'm assuming bison weren't going into caves to poop. Uh, so how? why was the dung in the caves? That's a good question. I don't have an answer. Um, was it a fuel source? It It's probably a field source. That's what I've heard. And the people who lived there, do they have a name? Um, yeah, so they're generally called promontory people, but there's evidence that they um, were a Dene group who were transitioning to a southwestern way of life. And you can Ooh. tell that by their moccasins. So they have, in the caves, is something like 2,500 moccasins. Wow. And their style, you there's different styles of moccasin. They have a subarctic style, which is really weird that they're there in uh, Utah and um, the Great Basin. I find the Dene to be fascinating. Uh, they usually live on the edge of ecosystems. Um, 
Yeah. And their range is amazing too. Yeah. <laughs> Going from, like you said, the subarctic all the way down to the Navajo. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. Um, we think the promontory people could have been um, ancestors of modern day Southwestern Apache groups. So it's all about the transition of culture. Cool. That's a fascinating story to unravel. How big are these caves? Oh, I don't know. I know that the it was roughly inhabited by about 40 people, I think. So I don't know. I feel like that's a sm- such a small number of people, especially when you consider the amount of remains and faunal elements that are left in the caves. There's something like 2 million faunal fragments left for only a 50-year period. So that's why I find promontory so interesting is like, why did they leave after only 50 years? Mm -hmm. Especially considering those remains. Like, There's so many bison remains, and bison were clearly so abundant in the area. And they were clearly really well-skilled big game hunters. And if there's so many bison in the area, why are you leaving? Yeah. There's also evidence that um, bison became significantly less at the end of Promontory's inhabitants at around 1300 AD. So that is kind of what we're going on, that the bison left. So that might have... Um, influence promontory people to shift their range too. Is there an indication that they were a migratory population or did they stay in one place or do you know? Um, Yeah. So I know that the caves were um, seasonally inhabited um, and these were definitely people who moved around, but they, they had a, they they knew the landscape. They were highly skilled, highly knowledgeable about the landscape um, and about bison. So they weren't just mindlessly roaming. They knew where they were going and they had purpose in where they were going. That is one misconception that people often think is that because a group moves around a lot, uh, they didn't have a plan as to where they were going. Yes. But often they repeated patterns. Yes. Um, uh, that's why I say migratory population rather than nomads. Yes. Uh, nomads has the connotation that they were just mindlessly wandering, yeah. whereas there was much more skill to it. Absolutely. And I try my best to bring that out in my writing. Sometimes it's difficult to do that, though. Of course. Well, I mean, our language is evolving constantly. And uh, oh, I like to think it's moving in a more inclusive direction. But uh, I hope so, too. In 50 years, we may look back at this and um, wince. (laughs) Now, one of my favorite parts of this podcast series has been hearing about field stories. Um, You evidently do quite a lot of work in the field. Uh, I've personally never worked in the field, um, but it sounds like this amazing place where uh, things happen, things go wrong. It is terribly frustrating for you and terribly uh, enjoyable and comedic for me, Um, you know, sitting in the comfort of this uh, museum. So I'm curious, do you have any field stories that you'd care to share? I unfortunately have not done a field school or field work, mostly because of 
my transition from the biology program to anthropology and how late that was and then COVID. So I have not had that opportunity, unfortunately, but um, I do work in a laboratory in Thunder Bay. Um, I'm a chemistry and microbiology analyst and those instruments have a mind of their own. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I tell people that they have a mind of their own and you can sense in the air when something's going wrong when you're having your lunch break. And I find those stories funny. Like no one believes me that you can just sense it, but you definitely can. They definitely have a mind of their own. It's amazing. Uh, we treat machines as these impassionate uh, automatons, but they they do have moods. And they mood definitely swings. do. Yes. They have favorite people too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My uh, editor for this podcast was just telling me how um, they followed the rules of you know the software and it glitched and ruined the entire interview. And now she's back uh, at square one, having to completely oh, no. re-edit an interview. Not because of anything she did wrong, but because the software uh, decided to throw a tantrum. Yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. I also find it amazing that um, we always think we know what archaeologists are, uh, but you're an archaeologist who hasn't set foot in the field, and you work in a lab. Uh, this really throws the notion of Indiana Jones yeah. out the window. <laughs> it's yeah. a very inaccurate representation of what real archaeology is. Yeah, I love archaeology because it's um, so diverse in the methods. Uh, I am definitely a person who loves to be in the lab. I probably would like field work, but right now the lab is where I feel at home. And I love running analyses, prepping materials. So I am definitely not your traditional archaeologist, I guess. <laughs> Maybe I would have gone into archaeology if I'd known that that was an option. <laughs> I hate being outdoors. Um, I always say we've spent thousands of years um building better buildings why would i then go and sleep in the woods <laughs> that that's actually interesting though because yeah field work tends to be outside but i've read archaeological papers and books and whatnot about archaeology really indoors mm -hmm. and just like the culture of people and not even ancient people but like modern people interacting like they're there's stories there and there's culture. The one thing they don't show about Indiana Jones is the lab work that um, yeah. you have to do <laughs> yeah, really. to bring it in. And those kinds of archaeologists who go into the field uh, are probably like our geologists. They over collect. And then when it comes time to actually uh, do the analysis, uh, they're getting distracted by another field trip. And then when things like COVID hit mm -hmm. uh, and they're forced to cancel all those field trips, they've got a huge backlog of work to do uh, that they should have been doing for years. Yeah. <laughs> many of our geologists say that they were, uh, many of our scientists, I should say, uh, say that they were actually kind of relieved to ha have to cancel a field season. Oh, yeah. Because they cleared the backlog. Or <laughs> <laughs> they attempted to clear the backlog. Mm. You can't actually <laughs> do it. I'm curious, why do you do what you do? Um, what are the real world applications of this research? 
Um, well, I guess the analytical side of me would say yeah, I'm growing a I'm growing the field of strontium analysis. Um, not just with the dung, but also I hope to use laser ablation to um, microsample these bison bones in the future um, and sort of do a histological study with these strontium isotopes. Um, so I guess the analytical application would just be growing the field of strontium and micro sequentially sampling these bones. But Archaeology definitely also has a personal um, application. Uh, I, I think I shouldn't overstep where I speak um, in this study um, because these stories aren't mine. I'm not indigenous. Um, so I, I need to be careful and every, all archaeologists really need to be careful um, of what they say and how they say it and not confining indigenous people to a certain narrative that has been stereotypically done in the past, mm -hmm. but allowing their stories um, to come to life if they want. No, I love that. Um, first, I love the idea that uh, we're studying these ancient people using cutting-edge science. Uh, if only these people from 800 years ago uh, knew that their lives were being studied with lasers and <laughs> <laughs> these elements that they didn't even know existed at mm -hmm. the time. Um, I like to think that they would be uh, honored <laughs> that um, they were the subject of such advanced research. And then, like you said, uh, there's the personal aspect of you're telling the stories of people from 800 years ago and just a very small community. Uh, if you go even further back, uh, back in time uh, and look at the really early humans, uh, those are our ancestors. And it's the story of uh, all of us. Mm -hmm. In this case, you're right. Uh, it's not your story or my story, but um, yeah, for the truly ancient stuff, it's it is. Yes. I do. Uh, well, it's definitely not the writing. <laughs> I, um, I don't know. I think just being in the lab is my favorite thing. Um, maybe if I couldn't pick the lab, I'd say finally making that breakthrough into something I've been working on for a few days or a few weeks and finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, making connections to something I've been working on. Excellent. Now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Uh, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? Um, so normally in archaeology, I'd say you get what you get from the caves or from your site. Um, you can't really produce ancient bones, ancient dung, whatever it is, uh, out of thin air. So you get what you get. But I am in a really exceptional place where Promontory has 
so many well-preserved organic remains that I can do things that not a lot of other people get to do. I get to compare different substrates um, to each other that don't always exist, like dung. Um, did I answer the question? <laughs> no, I, I think that's that's something I hadn't thought about, but it does make sense. Uh, the quantity of your data isn't in your control. No, not at all. It's a roll of the dice. It is. And um, like you said, you can't manufacture um, data inputs. And if you, you are, then you're not doing archaeology. Exactly. <laughs> that's called fraud. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, um, what is it about promontory that's preserved these organic remains? Why haven't they rotted away? Uh, so they're caves, so they're pretty much protected from the elements. Um, but I think also just the the dryness of the caves um, has something to do with the preservation. My committee member asked me this, and I completely blanked, and I'm doing it again. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Uh, being sheltered and dry uh, would essentially desiccate the, the remains, and that's a great preservation technique. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities in the field of archaeology? And if so, has that impacted your studies or your career in, in any way? I do not really identify as an underrepresented um, community, but like as I've said, um, I think archaeology definitely needs to do better in their diversity um, or representing diversity, and e even in the way they talk about certain um, people. There, there, we talk about archaeology like it's so black and white, like male, female. No, there's more than that. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I, and we've talked about this in courses I've taken, but I, I think we have made some progress, but there's definitely a long way for archaeology to go. It's good to know that. Um at least in the realm of gender, uh, they're roughly an equal number of males and females. So that's, that's good. Um, but I'm sure just like with, uh, paleontology, I've heard the, the myth of the, um, rugged male paleontologist going out and making an amazing discovery all by himself, um, is inaccurate and not necessarily helpful. Um, yeah, I've been lucky. A lot of my, um, colleagues, uh, my supervisor, um, they're all female mostly. Oh, wow. So I don't, I, I, I guess I'm lucky to have not been in that predicament, but I, I know it's real and, um, I'm just privileged. I, in that sense, I guess. But I mean, the, the stereotype is also unhelpful because, no one discovery is made by one single oh, person. Exactly. And again, if it is, chances are that one person is bulldozing their way through um, a lot of nuanced uh, scientific um, 
evidence, which really should be analyzed by a team. Mm -hmm. So the the best science is done collaboratively. I agree 100%. Speaking of which, do you find that archaeology is a really open and welcoming field or is it more closed off and insular or both? I have found, at least at my university, um, it's been very welcoming. Uh, I can't say in the field. I don't have that experience. (laughs) But um, even at the lab I work at, that's been very welcoming. Excellent. Uh, You mentioned that the pandemic has uh, derailed all field work. Um, How else has it impacted your work? Yeah, so the pandemic happened um, at the beginning of my fourth year of my undergrad. So that's the year when you do your honors thesis, if you choose to do one. So (laughs) that pretty much got moved to online. But I was really fortunate that the lab techs at Lakehead um, were able to come in and I was able to come in to um, the micro microscope lab and they were able to help me, um, figure out how to work the microscope and how to take photos of my thin sections. And, uh, I was, I, I think I was really lucky, um, to be able to do that when I know a lot of people either just didn't work on the project they were supposed to, or, um, had to work from home and couldn't do everything they wanted. Excellent. Uh, In this building, we do thin sections of rocks. Uh, What were you thin sectioning? I had thin sections of bison bones. Um, So I was doing a histological study on them, which means uh, the bone, the microscopic tissues of bone. Um, So I was identifying their relative sequence which is what I um, want to use under the laser. So I want to sample the relative sequence of the bone and then sort of like use the strontium isotopes to say they were here. Well, not they were here then, but sort of just a, a sequence of events in these bones. So it sounds like archaeology and geology are not that dissimilar. (laughs) No, I have help from many geologists, especially mapping. You're here with our geochemists. Yes. uh, Analyzing your strontium filled poop. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If anyone's listening right now and would like to follow in your footsteps, what which courses or uh, even just experience would you recommend they pursue uh, to become a good archaeologist? Um. I have so many different answers for that. (laughs) Excellent. Um, The first one I would say is, well, probably do a field school. Don't be like me and not do one. (laughs) Do one and maybe do two or three um, if you can. Um, The other thing I would say is if you want to do like more lab work, more chemistry Um, work on those skills. I found that my time in the lab has definitely helped me um, develop my skills, my technique. And I, I feel like I can tell a difference in when I'm doing good work or bad work. Um, The other thing I would say is talk to your professors. I know it seems scary. 
I waited to the last minute to do it too. Um, but talk to your professors, see what they're doing. Um, if you have an interest, uh, go talk to them. Um, and then see what they can maybe do for you. I know my professor um, was able to help me do a few special topics courses. So it was a, a course that was tailored to my project. And I did, I think, two of those. Yeah, two of those. Um, so that was really helpful. Um, and then... Because I, I work with, or I don't work with bison, but my project is about bison. Um, one of the courses I found really helpful at Lakehead was a course called Animals and People. And so that, um, that course helped me realize the connection and the interaction between animals and people. And people are animals and animals ha can or do... Um, show things that are we typically only describe as human. Um, they are their own people, too. Mm -hmm. So there's different aspects of my work that I would say have been very helpful and have taught me a lot. I remember being so intimidated by um, my professors during my undergrad. And when it came to the end of that experience, um, I had no idea how to go into grad school. If I'd talked to my professors, uh, that's basically the first step. You yeah. have to develop a relationship with them and you have to do it when you're an undergrad. Yes. And like you said, it's terrifying. It is. Uh, but I work with professors and you know what? They are, they're friendly. Uh, they do very dumb things sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, just because they're a genius in one field does not mean they're a genius in all fields and you don't need to be intimidated by them. Yeah, definitely. Um, and most of them, like, they don't bite. No. They want you to come and talk to them. They, they really do. And, like, you hear that so often in your undergrad courses. Like, come talk to us. We don't bite. But you never really believe it until no. you go talk to them. And I think that's a big mistake a lot of people make. And you realize they're just goofballs just like us. Yes. Um, so, yeah, don't be afraid of them. That fear uh, will have a real impact. Um, talking to them won't. or Well, it will, but <laughs> uh, there's no downside to getting to know your professors yeah. a little better. You're just at the beginning of your career. Mm -hmm. um, you've got a long archaeological career ahead of you. I'm curious, uh, what would you like to have as your personal legacy when you eventually retire? Oh, that's a tough question. Or I should phrase it another way. What would you like future archaeologists to know about you? <laughs> oh, that's even harder. <laughs> um, I don't know. Remember, it's I only just... 50 years. <laughs> I... I just want to do as much as I can um, and I don't know, just do as much as I can within the short amount of time I'm here. <laughs> I guess that's a, um, a side effect of your industry. When you're looking at timescales of hundreds or thousands of years, uh, you realize just how short yeah. uh, your own career and your own impact is. Yeah, definitely. Now, my final question, um, 
the world is changing at lightning speed these days, not just in terms of climate change, but also in terms of just how we process the world. Uh, technology is changing everything. Uh, when I was a kid, we were using Betamax, uh, and now you can stream anything from around the world. Um, it's the same with archaeology, I'm sure, too. What changes do you see coming to the field of archaeology, and what advice would you have for young people to anticipate some of these changes? Um, something I would hope for is that not even just archaeology, but more atypical science fields become more mainstream. Um, that's something I like to work on is telling kids that you can have a career in archaeology. It, it might be scary at some time, at some points, but like, you can do it if you put your mind to it. And I, I find when people say, oh, I, I, I can't be a scientist, like I'm not smart enough. No, like, you can do it as long as you set your mind to it. Um, even if you fail first year undergrad, you can still do it. They're not going <laughs> to not let you into your master's. Um, yeah, I just like science to be more inclusive and um, more available to people. That's great. Um, again, uh, we all have our strengths and weaknesses and you don't have to be perfect at everything because... Again, you're working in a team. All the best discoveries are made as a team, not one individual person. And that uh, not only diffuses the glory of um, of a discovery, but also diffuses the uh, responsibility. You aren't responsible for knowing everything about a problem. Uh, you contribute to the the whole puzzle. Yeah. It's also more fun to work in a group. Oh, yeah. And... It's more fun and it's more rewarding. It, there's no point in making a discovery if you can't share it with anyone. I spent 18 months working mostly alone at home. That was not fun. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, being back with the museum team, uh, that is much more enjoyable. Uh, and I'm sure it's the same for you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we still connect over Zoom sometimes, mm -hmm. but just having people there to bounce ideas off and discuss and work on work and writing it's so much more enjoyable and it's much more efficient and productive i find too absolutely well those are all the questions i have for you for today did i miss anything or is there anything you want to add before i let you go um no i think that's it excellent well thank you for sharing your passion um your alternative perspective to geochemistry or alternative applications of uh, geochemistry uh, and for sharing your time and stories with me today. Thank you for having me. This is my first podcast. Excellent. Well, you did a great job. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson, and Ollie Beatty made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia.
For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week here on Earth.